I invite you to take a Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 30, and we'll read from 9.30 to chapter 10, verse 4, in order to set the stage and provide the foundation and authority for these comments on preaching with zeal that accords with knowledge. Romans 9, 30. Before I read it, let me just uh, make a link with yesterday's talk about worship and preaching. Perhaps the most salient thing about that message in my mind was these two ways that God means to be glorified. One, by being known truly, and the other by being valued duly. There is a right conception of God, and there is a right affection for God, and the affection accords with the conception. And to the degree that the the conception and contours of God are biblical and clear and accurate according to his infinite reality, those affections should be enlarged to fit that, which means they should be very large. Any affections that are small are either owing to the fact that you don't have a right conception of God, or there's something in your framework that is so broken and out of sync that you are only giving God half the worship He deserves by thinking rightly about Him, but not feeling rightly toward Him. Jonathan Edwards, who uh, said something that is mind-boggling, and yet I think accurate. He said, I count it to be my duty to lift the affections of my hearers as high as I can possibly lift them, provided that I lift them only with truth and that the affections are proportionate to the nature of the truth with which they are lifted. So if the truth is a horrid truth, like hell, the affections would be horrid affections, like fear. And if the truth is glorious truth, like heaven, or like Christ crucified and risen, then the affections would be glorious affections like joy and gratitude and a thrill of exultation to have seen and known and be loved by such a God. So that was yesterday. And there is a a form of communication that accords with worship made up of those two realities. Right conceptions and right affections. And it's called preaching. Preaching is expository exaltation. Expository meaning you help your people get a vision of biblical truth about God. 
And exaltation means you respond to that truth in your preaching with the very affections that you hope you'll bring them up to. And you exult over the truth that you declare. Now, if all that is true from yesterday, then then it doesn't surprise you that I would take up a theme like zeal that accords with knowledge, which is right here in this text. And so let's let's read it and we'll read enough verses around it so that you will have a context. Starting at Romans 9.30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness? Even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Or literally, verse 4 would read, The goal or the end of the law is Christ for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, one of the shocking things in this text is that a person can have a zeal for God and not be saved. Let me show you that just to make sure you didn't miss it. Chapter 10, verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for his Jewish kinsmen, is for their salvation. So they're not saved. These Jews that he is aching to see saved are not saved. And then he says in verse 2, For I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. Just stop right there and let it sink in. I'm praying for their salvation because they have a zeal for God. So you can have a zeal for God and need salvation. Pastors can have a zeal for God and need salvation. Elders can have a zeal for God and need salvation. Deacons can have a zeal for God and need salvation. Seminary presidents and 
faculty members and deans can have a zeal for God and not be saved. Which lands on me as a pastor very seriously. Because over the last five years or so at Bethlehem, we have crafted a mission statement that puts zeal for God right at the center of things. Our mission statement hangs on the wall in our church says, we exist to spread a passion, and that's just another name for zeal. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. And now I read, you can have that and not be saved. To which a pastor might respond by saying, well, or a small group leader might respond, or a leader of a campus ministry might respond, or a leader of a school might respond. Then, goodness, by all means, let's not put any premium on zeal. Let's put a premium on things that are not that vulnerable to being there, yet salvation not be there. Let's put a premium on something that's got to be there with salvation. That would be a very grave mistake, wouldn't it? There are some big problems with uh, saying, well, if you can have a zeal for God and not be saved, therefore, let's not put any high premium on zeal and find out, rather, what's essential here. One of the main problems with that conclusion is that the Bible not only says that you can have a zeal for God and not be saved, it says you will not be saved if you don't have a zeal for God. For example, Revelation 3.16. Because you are lukewarm... Neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's Jesus talking to the church, Laodicea. Well, I think not being cold or hot means at least feeling nothing special for Jesus. Nothing approaching zeal. And you're going to get spit out of his mouth, vomited up. He's not a... Happy place to be. Or Romans 12, 11, Never flag in zeal. Be aglow with the Spirit. And that word, be aglow, that's the RSV there. Topnumati zeantes. The Greek word zeantes is boil. Fervent is the English word from which we, uh, which comes from the Latin fervens, which means boil. So to be a, a fervent Christian, a zealous Christian, is to be one whose spirit boils for God. And that's what Romans 12, 11 commands. Never flag in zeal, be aglow, be boiling with the Spirit. If you have a church with, filled with people who don't have that, 
you should be on your face before the Lord day and night. That God would come and awaken them. That's what is called revival. Revival is not a weekend. Hardly anybody in the South knows that. (laughs) Except Presbyterians. You don't hold revivals. You don't have revival meetings. That's just a terrible American misuse of the great concept of revival. Revival is a work of God that comes by his wonderful grace in which he takes a dead or sleepy congregation and makes them wake up to the glory of God in Jesus Christ so that they are transformed into boiling people. Or take a third text. 1 Corinthians 16:22 If anyone does not love the Lord let him be accursed Doesn't say if anyone has not made a decision for the Lord let him be accursed It doesn't say if anyone does not believe in the Lord let him be accursed It says if anyone does not love the Lord let him be accursed Isn't that remarkable? Loving Jesus is not icing on the cake of Christianity. It is Christianity because minus it, you're cursed. Oh, how we've divvied up Christianity in remarkable ways. I I remember hearing a a well-known Reformed pastor preach on this text years and years ago. And I was so stupid. Done negatively at the way he handled this text. I just I just came out of that room saying, God, don't ever let me become like that. He never even touched on this issue. He never even came close to addressing what Paul is saying here. Namely, you got to love him or you die. He didn't he didn't do anything to Stun his people with the radical nature of that closing word in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't love him, you go to hell. Do you love him? Do you love him? We should be saying to our people. Instead of just thinking, do you believe things about him? Did you walk an aisle one time and sign on to his cause? Do you show up on Sunday morning? Do you read your Bible? Those are not the issue here. Do you love him? Otherwise, you perish. I mean, that should just, should, that's going to transform a church. Because either people will leave the church while you preach that, or they'll start loving him. He He didn't even... He didn't seem to get it. And, and I'll tell you why. It's because so many reformed people are scared to death of emotions. I tell you, it's a sickness in the church. It's a sickness in the church when we're scared of emotions. Love is not equal to emotion, nor is it Less than emotion. It's more, not less. When Jesus said, I hear so many people, they're so defensive at this point. 
wanting not to equate love with emotion. Say, well, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so keeping the commandments is what it is to love Jesus. That is not what he said. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He didn't say loving me is keeping my commandments. If you love me, if you love me, some will change in your life. And the love is far deeper than the physical activity of walking somewhere or doing something or saying a word. Those are just the shell that give evidence of the reality of the life within. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. A fourth text. I'm illustrating the point you've got to have zeal in order to be saved. So I'm saying not only does the text say you can have zeal and not be saved, but other texts say you can't be saved if you don't have it. Jesus. Jesus, it seems to me, as I read the Gospels, which every... Pastors should do all the time. Groped. That's the way it would be for me if I were in his shoes. He didn't grope. He knew exactly where he was reaching. But he reached for words and images that would cause people to be shocked out of their neutral, lukewarm, non-zealous frames. He who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33 or Matthew 5, 11. When men persecute you and revile you, rejoice in that day. For great is your reward in heaven. Our people, by and large, are so far from that. What, what would what would the translation be for most of our people? It would be something like, when you're persecuted and reviled, murmur in that day. Because they're mistreating you. Murmur in that day. Grumble in that day. Complain in that day. Feel self-pity in that day. Get depressed in that day. I mean, where are you, Jesus? What planet are you from? Rejoice in that day? I'll rejoice when I get well, thank you. I'll rejoice when people stop criticizing me. I'll rejoice when I don't lose my job. I'll rejoice when my marriage works for a change. I'll rejoice when my kids come home. Don't tell me to rejoice in the middle of my misery. And Jesus says, excuse me? I'm God. I'll decide when you should rejoice. And I'm telling you, if you knew me, if you knew him who gave you, if you knew him who is asking you water, John 4, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And that's what I'm giving you here. Living water in the midst of your misery. And your reward in the end is infinitely great forever and ever. And this slight momentary affliction is working for you. 
everlasting weight of glory beyond all comparison. So rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And hardly anybody does that today. Hardly anybody is is a Christian, it seems. Matthew 5.29, it is better to gouge out your eye and to go to heaven than to keep your eyes for lust and go to hell. How many people in your, how many men are gouging out their eyes or anything close to it to fight internet pornography? Are you preaching that way? Gouge it out. Take a screwdriver. Gouge out your eye. Find words that are like Jesus words. Don't soften things. People are always trying to think, well, this must be a symbol. Well, so, so, okay, it's a symbol. So what, what's the next symbol you use? A lousy one. A weak one. A powerless one. Okay, it's a symbol. You don't want to use it. Lest somebody actually take you literally. Find another one that's just as effective. But we do just the opposite. Well, sort of try hard not to lust or something. That's zero effective. You want to go to hell? Pluck out your eye. You want to go to... No, I got that wrong, didn't I? <laughs> Holler at me. Holler at me. You want to go to heaven? Pluck out your eye. You want to go to heaven? Chop off your hand. Okay, I'm just illustrating that Jesus, in his teaching, seemed to look for language that would would shock people, stir people, move people, either make people mad and go away or make them zealous to follow him because he's radical. And the last thing you can be in the presence of Jesus is lukewarm. You just can't be neutral around Jesus. He won't let it be. And you shouldn't preach that way. Good night, there's so much boring preaching. It is so boring. And, oh, I could just give you reasons for this all over the place from Bible versions that are used to other things. Um, but I, I, I feel like there's a curse of generalization in preaching. Just a curse of generalization and a fog of generalities is created. And the people kind of, they're just kind of floating out there. It's just, whoa, I think he's talking about God or Christ or salvation. And nothing ever gets crystal clear, specific and pointed. It just doesn't go home. It's just kind of... And you... You stop and think about it, you say, you know, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. I don't think he had time to get ready. And enough of that goes by, you lull people into thinking that's normal, that's Christianity. What he feels is what you should feel, and he obviously doesn't feel anything specific or powerful, and so I shouldn't either, and over time... That church just settles into a kind of uh, country club uh, atmosphere and and everybody likes everybody and they're all kind of cool and that's church. So 
So the point stands, I think, that uh, you can be lost and have a zeal for God. Now, why? It's real obvious. In fact, some of you are upset that I stopped in the middle of the sentence in verse 2. But you needed to feel the force of you can have a zeal and be lost. And sometimes you stop in the middle of sentences. I'll give you another illustration of that. Uh, it's good to read whole sentences in the Bible. In fact, it's good to read whole paragraphs. But sometimes it's good to read half sentences. When Jesus said, Son of Man came not to be served. Stop! That's shocking. Came not to be served? I thought I was supposed to serve him. So if you read that verse real fast, Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for man. Start preaching on the second half of the verse. The first half never clobbers you. He came not to be served. Thank you. Don't serve Jesus. When was the last time you preached a sermon? Don't serve Jesus. <laughs> I preach that everywhere I go. It's one of my favorite sermons. How not to serve God. Because Acts 17.25 says, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. But he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. Well, that's, that's just a parenthesis to illustrate how to stop in the middle of sentences. <laughs> So let's read the rest of verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now there's the problem. They have a zeal for God, and it, it doesn't accord with knowledge, and so it's suicidal. So there's a life-giving zeal, and there's a life-taking zeal, and the difference seems to be... How you know or what you know. Now, what didn't they know? That's the crucial question here, isn't it? Verse 3. Verse 2 again, but then we'll read into verse 3. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing. So here's what they don't know. Here's what the knowledge is missing. For not knowing God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now notice, there are three parts to verse 3. The righteousness of God and then two responses to it. Seeking to establish your own. And the other one is not subjecting yourself to God's. And those are not obviously separate. Those are the same. Two sides of the same coin. You, you are unwilling to submit to God's. And so you seek to establish your own. That's the way they were acting because they lack knowledge of God's righteousness. Hmm. Now, let's think about this. I think at this point, some of Paul's Pharisaic listeners would protest. Say, well, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. 
That's not it. You just, you're setting this up all wrong because you're putting a negative twist on something that's not negative. Namely, what else would submission to God's righteousness be if it's not my effort to be righteous? To obey the law, to keep the commandments. God says, don't commit adultery. I try not to commit adultery and I succeed. Bible says don't steal. Bible says don't kill. Bible says don't covet. And I do those things and that's my righteousness. And I'm doing that in submission to God who gave that law. What do you mean this is insubordination and unwillingness to submit to the righteousness of God? This is our submission to the righteousness of God. Our law keeping is. Thus spake the early Paul, the early Luther, and the legal Christian or non-Christian all through the centuries. What's wrong there? What's wrong with that conception? I think Paul's answer would be, and, and if this were a message on justification and the nature of righteousness, I would unpack this more, but I'll trust your Reflection on it rather than taking half an hour to unpack it. I think Paul would say, no, I'm not. I'm not putting a negative twist on something positive. I'm showing you the essential negative nature of something devastatingly wrong in your awareness of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is a gift of free and sovereign grace to you. It is a gift of grace that comes through faith to be received. It was wrought out and purchased for you by Jesus Christ. And I give it to you as a gift, the gift of righteousness. To submit to a gift is not to perform anything to demonstrate yourself as having fulfilled what the gift imparts and gives. What I'm doing, God says, is giving you righteousness. A righteousness that my son lived out for you, brought to consummation in his death. The end and goal of the law is Christ for righteousness. For all who believe. Now submit to that means receive that. Receive that. Don't put before it or in its place A set of performances on your part that show yourself right so that God acknowledges your rightness. Recognize you don't have any rightness that you can commend to God. The only hope of being right with God is to receive rightness from God as a gift and submit to that gift. And that's called faith. That's the alternative. They didn't, they, they were ignorant of this. That's what they were ignorant of. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God. What those Jews listened to Paul and said, that's all we think about is the righteousness of God. What do you mean we're ignorant of the righteousness of God? And he would say, you just don't get it. You think that the righteousness of God is his righteous demand for you to measure up to a certain standard by which you will then 
be accepted and he's telling you it's a free gift now and it comes through Jesus Christ. Now what's wrong here? What what kind of ignorance is this? Is it ignorance that is uh, lacking in information? I don't think so because Paul argues in chapter 4 of Romans from the Old Testament that Abraham was justified by faith. He develops all of his underpinnings for his doctrine of justification out of the Old Testament, not laid on to the Old Testament. I think rather it is a kind of ignorance that's owing to spiritual blindness and pride and therefore miracles are needed to overcome it. For example, the miracle of 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, notice the word knowledge. I read that too fast, so you didn't hear it, but I'll read it again slowly. Listen for the word knowledge. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness. In other words, the God who at the beginning of creation put things in place and created is the one who has shown in our hearts. So the same miraculous creative activity is needed in my heart as was needed to bring light into existence at the beginning. The one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So when Paul preached, or when I preach, or you preach, In and through that preaching, there must be a divine, creative, supernatural impartation of light, of knowledge. This is an awakening of the soul to see glory and beauty and truth in the gift of righteousness, among other things, rather than the earning of righteousness. So, I conclude then... There is a zeal for God that does not accord with this knowledge. You can have it and not be saved. And in order to get it, there has to be the impartation of word, knowledge, but in and through that, a supernatural work of creative, divine activity by which our hearts are made awake to truth and beauty. Now, let me apply this in three ways. I want to apply it to uh, the issue of knowing, the issue of being, and the issue of doing. Three brief closing applications. Number one, knowing. One of the implications of what I'm saying here is that all you pastors and those that you care about and are bringing along in your mentoring of one or two as you pray toward God, raising others up among you, is that you would make careful, accurate, grammatical, historical, spiritual, penetrating, passionate, practical study of the Bible, the center of your ministry. And if you can, in the original languages. Now you may say, where did that come from? Why you bring that in here? I know many of you don't have that privilege right now. Never had it or you lost it. 
And some of you have it and might lose it. And so I know I'm speaking to a mixed, mixed bag. We're all over the map on what we're able to do with Greek and Hebrew. But I want to argue that if you have it, labor to keep it and put it at the center of your labors. If you don't, esteem it rather than resenting it and pray towards those who are coming behind you getting it. Or maybe make it your aim to get it. Why? Why do I bring that here? Because of what Martin Luther, who was so big on this issue of the righteousness of God and knowing it truly, said. Here's what he said. March 15, 1545, he wrote about the great discovery which had happened earlier, 1518. A single word, Romans 1.17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, stood in my way. I hated that word, righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. Nevertheless, I beat See, here's Greek Testament. He beat. He beat on the Apostle Paul, he said. I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what Paul meant. You done anything like that recently? Boy, I'm preaching through Romans, and I come to some places, and oh, I, I sometimes hit my head on my desk. I was like this. I say, Lord, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. Please give me a breakthrough here. And I cry out to God and wait. And then I look in fresh places. Here's what he wrote. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by, is that which the righteous lives by the gift of God, namely by faith. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Now, what did he attribute that breakthrough to? Two things, God in his wonderful grace and the original languages. Listen to what he wrote. Without the original languages, we could not have received the gospel. Languages are the scabbard that contain the sword of the spirit. They are the casket which contains the priceless jewels of antique thought. They are the vessel that holds the wine. If the languages had not made me positive as to the true meaning of the word, I might have still remained a chained monk engaged in quietly preaching Romish errors in the obscurity of a cloister. No sooner did men cease to cultivate the languages than Christendom declined. But no sooner was the torch relighted than this papal owl fled with a shriek. If we neglect the literature, we shall eventually lose the gospel. 
It is certain that unless the languages remain, the gospel must finally perish. I believe that's true. Which is why I say to all of you who don't have Greek and Hebrew, esteem it highly in your church. Get the best literal translation you can. Lean on those who do have it and raise up those among your number who will count it precious and go get it and learn it, love it, and dig deep and so keep the gospel. Keep the gospel. The gospel will be lost if all pastors only know English in America or German in Germany or Spanish in Spain or Portuguese in Brazil. If we only know translations, we will lose the gospel. I say that corporately, not individually. I don't mean you will have to lose it. I mean over time. If there are not strong coteries of pastors, and I don't just mean university professors out there who have all the luxury time to learn that stuff. I mean pastors will lose it. We live in a day, brothers, as you know, with such theological subjectivity and doctrinal lack of vitality and confessional confusion that all around us, objectivity and vitality and clarity are crumbling. And one clear test of our faithfulness to the absolute truthfulness of the Word of God and the preciousness of the Gospel is the strength of our commitment to the original languages in principle, if not in practice. Will we promote them? Will we love them? Will we esteem them? Will we encourage seminaries? Will you, if you sit on a board of a seminary, insist they make it the center of their curriculum and not let them water it down in the name of all kinds of practical courses because you feel like you're drowning in practical how-tos and when they leave the seminary, the students come back bellyaching that nobody taught them how to counsel or nobody taught them how to run a church or nobody taught them. And so the poor seminaries are so intimidated They have such a theological loss of nerve. They believe so little in what they do that they let these complaints dictate their curriculum and go change everything. And in 20 years, they go back and change it all over again because they got the reverse problem on their hands. You mature pastors. I'm making a risk there because I hope and do pray that you will agree that at root is what's needed in our seminaries is the Word of God studied in the original languages. There are a thousand things you will not know when you come out of seminary, and seminary couldn't have taught you anyway. You learn it in the trenches, and that's where you got to learn it. So don't blame the seminaries. Let them do what they can do. They can do exegesis. They can do some systematic theology. They can do some church history. They can give you a few pointers and some practicalities. And that's about it. It's the nitty-gritty life of the church. I skipped every practical course at Fuller Seminary. I could because I thought I would never be a pastor in 1971. And when I wound up 11 years later... Entering the pastorate, I was glad I skipped all those courses. (laughs) 
because I had so much substance with which I could deal. And when they said, okay, pastor, 34-year-old guy who's preached 15 sermons in your life, never run a church, never baptized anybody, never married anybody, never led the Lord's Supper, never dedicated a baby, never done anything, never led a committee, and you call me to be the pastor of this church, I could figure that out. I had a Bible. I had a Bible. I can figure this out. So they said, in three Sundays, we're going to dedicate babies. I said, oh, okay. I don't think I've ever seen one of those. Well, tell me about it. Well, what's the point of that? What do you do? I said, well, you know, we walk up the front and pastor says some words and prays for the baby and we dedicate the babies. Really? So I went to the Bible to try to figure if that was biblical or not. And I found just a, a little teeny foothold for it. And uh, <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, it's not unbiblical, so we'll keep that tradition. I don't want to make any waves here. <laughs> and and we, I'm 20 years there. I still dedicate babies. And, and I figured out the whole thing from scratch. They loved it. I made up the words, I made up the choreography, I made up everything from scratch. They loved it. They still love it. One of the favorite Sundays we have. I'm so glad I didn't take a course in dedicating babies. That would have been the biggest waste of time. I want Romans. I want Galatians. I want the Sermon on the Mount. I want doctrine. No lay people can help me get that. Oh, getting carried away here. Um, that was my first application of knowing is that love, love studying the Bible as the center of your ministry. And you know, I hope you know, I'm a real live pastor. I really deal with everything that's out there. I really do get involved with all the pain of everybody's life. So I'm not speaking to you out of some ivory tower that says, Oh, sure, that's the way a professor would talk, but you, you've never tried to deal with anybody who is uh, 150 pounds overweight and cuts herself every Friday night, so she has to go to the emergency room because she likes the way people touch her when she's getting stitches. I've dealt with people like that. I know what bulimia is about. I know what anorexia is about. I know what marriages breaking down at every stage along the way are about. I know what wayward kids are about. And I don't have any answers but the Bible. And if the Bible isn't the answer, I quit. I don't go to a new seminar. I quit. If the Bible does not have the answer for these things, if God's Word is not sufficient to help me break through into this marital situation, into this eating disorder, into this young woman's life. I quit. Because why play games? Why go borrow from the world what works and then fake it in the pulpit, holding this community of something or other together? Application number two. Being godly. Here's my point. One brief application. There is a zeal for God that won't keep you out of bed with your secretary. 
In fact, there is a zeal for God that will almost ensure that you get in bed with your secretary. I've been trying to figure this thing out. Good night. 10% of the pastors in the Minnesota Baptist Convention have been disciplined for sexual immorality in my denomination. Where's that come from? A lot of it comes straight from zeal for God in a counseling room, in prayer, holding hands with Jesus, feeling warm and loved and accepted. The stories I hear are absolutely incredible. As to how Jesus gets in bed with us people. I felt loved for the first time in my life, a pastor will say. I felt the acceptance of God. I felt grace. My wife, she's so hard and legalistic and inattentive. And this woman, when we prayed together, sparks flew. Zeal for Jesus flew. So what's wrong? Listen to these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. This is the will of God, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel, and that might refer to sexual organ or it might refer to your wife. Each knows how to possess his own vessel in holiness and honor Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Isn't that amazing that he would say that? Don't deal sexually in lustful passion like the nations, like the Gentiles. And then he defines the problem who do not know God. So there is a knowledge of God that will keep you out of bed with another man's wife. What kind of knowledge is that? And, and the answer is, it's not just knowing God as a warm, touchy-feely sensation. It's knowing God with contours of character and as the treasure of your life. You know, another, you know, in Greek, the word for zeal is zelos, and you know, another translation for zelos is what? Another word besides zeal. Jealousy. Jealous. I am jealous that God get all my affections. All my passion, all my zeal belongs to God. And if it's God's, it can't be depleted with this woman. And that'll keep you. There is a knowing God. And we sang about it. That's a great song we just sang. Knowing God. That kind of knowing. That kind of knowing. As the, the one who is, you're my all. You're the best. You're my joy. You're my righteousness. I love you, Jesus, so much. 
that I keep my eyes on your blood flowing down the cross and I say Christ died to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. That is to keep me out of bed with any other man's wife. And therefore for me to crawl into that bed would be like taking a sword and thrusting it right in your throat. And I won't do it because I know you as my treasure and my life and my all and my righteousness. You know Jesus like that, you won't. You won't do it. You will cut your hand off literally if you have to. Last application. Doing ministry. And this one I take right here from the text, verses 1 and 2. The first one was knowing. The second one was being godly. And now the third one is doing ministry. Um, brethren, verse one, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation, for I bear them witness. Did you hear two ministries there? My prayer to God, there's one. I bear them witness. There's two. I intercede for them with God. And I intercede for God with them in word. I pray to God about them. I talk to them from God. That's my life, Paul says. I want them saved. We want our people saved. Saved from immorality. Saved from hell. Saved from insignificance of life. We want them saved. How do you do it? You pray and you preach and you pray and you preach and you teach and you counsel and you love. You go to God for them. And you cry down all the mercy and you go to God or go to them with God, with God's word. And that's the, that's the ministry that will flow when you are full of this kind of, of knowledge.